Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Jonathan on Money. This is episode number 41, and we have a very timely and informative show today. I always think my shows are timely and informative, but I'm pretty biased on that. By the way, if there is a topic you'd like me to cover, feel free to reach out and let me know. This show is about you and answering your questions. So let me know your thoughts, and I'm happy to uh, cover any topics that you're interested in. My talking points this week will discuss the timely topic of, is spending a Shiva break in Florida financially prudent? I receive a question on this topic every year, and this year there's no exception. And since Yeshiva break or winter break for many Jewish private schools just passed, this is especially top of mind. Even for folks who don't send their kids to Yeshiva, this topic and all its related subtopics may be instructive to many. We'll also discuss an important quote from Vanguard founder Jack Bogle. And as always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. And with that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So I received the following question this week and really every week around Yeshiva break this season. The question was, traveling to Miami for Yeshiva break is super popular. Do you believe this is a prudent financial decision? I imagine the answer will differ based on a family's financial situation, but I'd love to hear your perspective. So for the uninitiated, Miami and Florida in general is an extremely trendy vacation destination during January when many of the Yeshivas around the country have winter break. Hotels are packed, restaurants require reservations weeks or maybe months in advance, and you're likely to run into every yid you ever met on Collins Avenue. Given its popularity, folks may feel social pressure to go to Florida during this time of year. However, it's important to assess whether this is a prudent financial decision for your family. The framework for making this decision involves a few factors, namely your ability to meet non-discretionary expenses, the level of cash in your emergency fund, your retirement savings strategy, and how you plan to finance your trip. Allow me to explain. First, non-discretionary expenses. The ability to pay your regular daily living expenses is paramount to any other financial goal. These expenses include your mortgage, utility bill, yeshiva tuition, and putting food on the table. If you are kept up at night wondering how you'll be able to afford any of these items, then going on vacation should not be in the cards. Next consideration is your emergency fund. The next priority is the level of assets that you have in this emergency fund. An emergency fund is excess cash folks keep in their checking or savings account that can immediately be drawn upon in the event of an emergency. The rule of thumb is to have three to six months worth of expense money in your account as a cushion in case a need arises. No need to worry about how you will pay if your boiler blows, you need a new roof, or your car needs to be repaired because your emergency money is already sitting in cash. It's highly recommended that you fund this emergency safety net before paying for a vacation. The next consideration is retirement savings. Before paying for a vacation, please consider paying yourself first. This is a phrase used by many financial experts to describe the process of regularly saving for retirement. The suggestion that retirement savings takes priority over vacation may seem ludicrous to some. After all, retirement may be decades in the future. However, saving regularly for retirement is a necessity to safeguard your financial future. Retirement planning is a long-term goal. 
It is not likely, it's not like an emergency fund where you meet certain thresholds of assets and then can stop saving. Instead, a prudent financial strategy generally focuses on one's process and requires savings regularly and investing that money properly. If you have a few decades until retirement, a rule of thumb is to save 15% of your net income. If you're closer to retirement and have only a modest sum saved, that percentage may need to be higher. Granted, the feasibility of any savings rate is very much dependent on each family's situation. However, the key point is that before you decide to indulge in any trip of type of trip, make sure that you're contributing regularly towards your retirement. The next point is the method of financing your trip. One of the biggest mistakes folks make before going on a trip is how they choose to pay for it. Paying in full out of your checking account, using a credit card and then paying your credit card bill, bill in full or using credit card points are all reasonable options for financing a trip. Some people may be fortunate to have a third party like a generous family member or employer sponsor their trip. The important thing is to keep in mind is that no, under no circumstances should your trip be financed using borrowed funds. Whether it's credit card debt or a home equity line of credit, using borrowed money to pay for vacation is a poor financial decision. Remember, going away for vacation is a luxury. It is not a right or an obligation. If you can't afford to pay out of, pocket, out of your own pocket, then pick a cheaper locale or stay at home. As I mentioned in the past, it's important for folks to live their rich life. If going to Florida for winter break sparks joy in your life, then take that trip, guilt-free, as long as you can address the four aforementioned criteria. However, any getaway that requires taking out debt, extra debt, or comes at the expense of paying your bills, having an adequate emergency fund or saving for retirement is a poor financial decision. No amount of social pressure will change that reality. Okay, those are the talking points for this week. And as a reminder, you can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth.com forward slash newsletter. We're currently at 7,500 subscribers and growing, so feel free to sign up and invite friends as well. Now for this week's quote, which is from the investment industry legend, founder of Vanguard and creator of the first index fund, Jack Bogle. First, a bit of background about Bogle himself for those who are not familiar. Jack Bogle was the founder of Vanguard Group, which is a multi-trillion dollar asset management firm. He was also a proponent of index investing. He essentially revolutionized the mutual fund world by creating index investing, which allows investors to buy mutual funds that track the broader market instead of trying to outperform it. He did this with the overall intent to make investing easier and at a lower cost of the average investor. He introduced the Vanguard 500 fund, which tracks the returns of S&P 500 and marked the first index fund marketed to retail investors. The fund started with a few, just a few million dollars and now it's just shy of a trillion dollars, which is truly amazing. And the quote is, investing is not nearly as difficult as it looks. Successful investing involves doing a few things right and avoiding serious mistakes. This quote is so important because investors try to do so many things to build wealth. However, building wealth is easy in theory. Spend less than you make, invest your savings prudently, and ignore the noise. If folks can ignore all that noise and have a process for investing over the long term, they'll end up in good shape financially. Keeping this simple philosophy in mind is what, will, what makes all the difference. Now let's jump to this week's financial questions. And if you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me. Again, my email is jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. I live in Houston and renting is super cheap relative to buying. Should I rent forever? So I'm gonna say something that will undoubtedly be triggering to many. 
There is nothing wrong with renting. In fact, from a pure investment perspective, taking the money you were planning to use to buy a home and investing in the stock market instead will likely give you a better return on your cash. Don't get me wrong, there are many benefits of owning a home, including a feeling of committing to a community, knowing what your monthly outlay is for, for uh, mortgage payments versus paying rent, for savings built in your home through home equity and others. If rent... If renting is very attractive where you live or provides other benefits to your life and you will be responsible with investing your cash, then you can rent forever. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that approach. Next question. I'm ready to retire. My wife is not ready to retire. She loves her job. The couples typically retire at the same time. If I'm retired and my wife is not, I feel like we will be living separate lives. It sounds like you need to chill the heck out. It's common for spouses to retire at different times. Why do spouses need to retire at the same time. In fact, it may be healthy for one spouse to be busy with work so you have additional income coming in and don't need to rely just on living off your social security nest egg. This can help mitigate sequence of returns risk when withdrawing from your retirement funds. It may also be healthy for your relationship. I remember working with a guy who commuted from Chicago to New York every week. He said the secret to being married for so long is he spent most of the week in another state away from his wife. This may not be a romantic lifestyle choice or one that many listeners would be interested in. However, with every crazy story, there is usually a lesson to be learned. It's immensely beneficial for each spouse to have their own interests, hobbies, friends, separate pursuits. The real issue here is you need to pick a hobby to occupy your time so you aren't so focused on problems where there aren't any. Or you could just go back to work. The next question is, why are your thought, what are your thoughts on tackling a bucket list in retirement? This is an interesting question. I feel like there is a lot to say about this, but let me discuss just a few points. One, don't think I don't think people should wait until retirement to check things off their bucket list. You don't know when you'll die or become too sick to do certain activities. Don't save activities for retirement. Do things while you can. Two, if you do have some items that you like to tackle in retirement, then I would also put a date on when you want to accomplish them. For example, if you want to travel to Brunei, then put a date when you want to travel there. If you want to learn Chinese bamboo, bamboo, bamboo weaving, then indicate a time frame when you like to become proficient in that very valuable craft. Goals with no timeline make it easier to procrastinate. Three, some of the best experiences in life, and especially in retirement, are just enjoying the everyday mundane activities. This may include going to later shopware in the morning because you are not in a rush to be anywhere, having brunch on a weekday with a friend, watching your grandkids, deciding to jet away at least... Uh, at the last minute for the weekend and so forth. I think most people will look back on life after may have asked from Shana and find more joy in these types of activities than the more, more exotic things that are traditionally found in a retiree's bucket list. And that perspective may be helpful for many. It seems like the market has a major correction every so often. What's the downside, downside of accumulating cash and waiting to invest only during these frequent market crashes? Lots of downside. You won't be able to accurately time when to get back into the market, so you'll suffer from inertia and may not be able to get back to the market at all. You'll also miss out on years of compounding. A dude once called me who had $9 million in cash waiting to get back into the market, and you heard that correctly, $9 million. He didn't put any money into the market since he sold everything and moved to cash at the heart of the financial crisis back in 2008. This $9 million could have been worth a multiple of what it is today if he didn't wait for the most opportune time to get back into the market. Needless to say, he is still waiting to invest. Your best bet is to develop a diversified portfolio 
add money regularly and stick with it over the long term. Trying to time the market is a fool's errand. The next question, your videos are cute, but super unprofessional. Aren't you concerned about coming off as amateurish? The answer to your question is no, this doesn't worry me. If you listen to the content of my videos, you realize it is high caliber, sophisticated, actionable, personal finance advice. On the other hand, if you listen to the fancy financial executives who wear fancy clothes and talk pretty on the major news channels, you will realize that most of what they are spewing is total and utter, utter nourish kite. Trying to predict the short-term moves in the market or individual stock is silliness. No one can do that with any level of consistency. And when these people are wrong, it's never if they're, they're wrong because they will always eventually be super wrong, which negates all their advice to begin with. They just revise their forecast. What good are predictions if they change it whenever they are wrong? In summation, the shtick I do on my video is to get people's attention. Once I have your attention, listen to what I am saying. It will likely be more impactful to your financial life than, what, than any other investing content you are consuming. And by the way, for those who are not in the know, you can watch my practical planning tip videos by subscribing to my YouTube channel. You can find it by simply Googling Jonathan I. Shankman and the word YouTube. You can then subscribe to be alerted of new content. Next question, Bitcoin ETF. How should I invest in it? I know you, you will say nothing. How much should I invest in it, I should say? I know you're going to say nothing, but I'm a big believer in the asset class. What do you recommend? Invest whatever you can afford to lose. My position on Bitcoin has always been the same. I know I sound like a broken record, but it's worth repeating for the umpteenth time. Bitcoin is not a business. It has no cash flow. It's not transparent. The underlying asset is a liquid, although an ETF should help with, liqui with liquidity, and its price is driven by pure speculation. Is it real or just an apparition? I'm not even sure how to classify it, but I can say that it is the definition of speculation and not a place to invest your family's nest egg. If you have the Taiba to speculate, invest only what you can afford to lose, like the same amount you would bring, like, bring to a casino. For the, those non-gamblers out there, Less than 3% of your portfolio is a good guideline. And most importantly, you need to have a man bun or it is not permissible for you to trade crypto to begin with. I can only afford to go away once a year. What is more impressive to go away? Sukkis, Yeshiva, Week, or Pesach? Such an important question. And thanks for having the gumption to ask. Many will benefit from this. So it really depends what you're looking at, who you're looking to impress. If you are more yeshivish and going away for Sukkot, preferably to Eretz Yisrael and staying at the Waldorf is a pretty good decision. If you're modern Orthodox, then a yeshiva, then yeshiva break in Panama and Islands or Florida are all prudent moves. Although Florida is very quickly losing its prestige to more exotic locations. Going away for Pesach is great if you either A, have generational level wealth and want to make take your extended family, B, plan on taking out a second mortgage or credit card debt to afford that overpriced trip, or C, know someone rich willing to pay for your trip, or D, have a large social media following and got your entire vacation comp on condition that you post daily videos of buffets while saying that everything is amazing. Personally, I think the most impressive move is to go on a road trip in the summer. Great way to see the country and minimize running into every single yid from your neighborhood. But hey, there are different folks for different strokes for different folks. Next question. I'm really confident in a few tech stocks for as long-term investments and don't want to sell them. I know you think that owning just a few stocks is not prudent, yet this is my plan. How do I minimize my risk without selling these stocks? You should start you should start building a diversified portfolio around these stocks. This is called a core satellite approach. 
Your core holdings will still be the stocks that you think will go up, and the satellites around them will be broad market indexes to help mitigate some of your risk. You may also want to consider building a decent cash cushion. Since you're taking a lot of risk by having most of your money in a few concentrated positions in one industry, having extra cash on hand in case things don't work out help minimize your risk. Hopefully it will work out for you. The next question, are, are there any constants when it comes to investing? It seems like the next hot thing is always changing. It would be nice to have some certainty. There are many constants. The first is something you just mentioned, which is, quote, the next hot thing should be avoided. 99% of the time, it's pure speculation and pure dreck. Let's keep going. Human emotions like fear, greed, and envy are always present. These emotions cause most of the bad decisions when investing. If you can figure out a system to manage these emotions, you will be more successful. Other constants include asset classes, uh, asset classes move in cycles, risk and reward are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. Diversification will help most investors achieve their goals. Don't time the market because you're not going to be successful. Stay the course, i.e. patching around with your portfolio is the opposite of this and will cause you to lose money. Automation will help you build wealth, keep things boring and ignore what they, and ignore what they say on TV and what your friends and broke brother-in-law are doing. There are probably some others, but these are the big ones. These are the big concepts with investing. And finally, last question, I'm outpacing the benchmark with my investments. Why would I ever hire a financial advisor? Oh, baby, here we go. First of all, what benchmark are you outperforming? You probably don't know the answer to this, which makes your question seem silly. Is it one that is relevant to your life? The answer is probably no. Second, if the arbitrary benchmark you are outperforming has a 0% return for a decade, which is not unheard of, and you return 1% for that decade, would you still be satisfied? Most people wouldn't be happy with that. And that makes outperforming the benchmark, as you said, far less attractive and relevant to your life. Third, you will likely not be able to outpace the benchmark over the long term. So it's important that I share that piece of truth with you now so you don't get your hopes up. Fourth, your goals, your goal shouldn't be to outpace a benchmark. It should be to achieve your financial goals. This may involve various financial decisions beyond just investing, asset location versus asset versus asset locate allocation, legacy planning, safe withdrawal rates, college planning, buying a vacation home, retiring at 50, and countless other possibilities. The point is your current strategy may not be able to address whatever your goals are. And fifth, not everyone needs a financial advisor. Most people will benefit from, from that type of relationship, but I can't say that it's right for you without knowing anything else about you. What I will say is based on your question, you can probably use some help. Okay, that's it for the financial questions this week. Again, feel free to reach out to me with any questions you may have, and I might answer them in a future episode. And you can reach me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And to all my, my listeners, if you can take a minute to subscribe to this podcast and rate the show on Apple and Spotify, it will help other personal finance enthusiasts find the show as well. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. 
Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.